So I chose to go to college in Washington, D.C. because I was very interested in government. And I had a plan. I would maybe intern in a congressional office there. I majored in government. And I was initially interested in studying kind of practical things, legislative process, electoral politics, uh, how government works or how it doesn't work. Uh, but I ended up taking this, uh, an introductory class, something called Elements of Political Theory. And it was really more of a philosophy class. And our instructor was fantastic. It's the best teacher I've ever had. Uh, we spent the first five weeks reading through Plato's Republic. And we read through all the important authors in the history of political philosophy, including uh, people like John Stuart Mill and Machiavelli and Karl Marx. And um, when you study political philosophy, you're looking at the kind of the bigger questions. Oftentimes we debate politics and policies, but we don't ever ask the bigger questions. And so the questions you, you contemplate in political philosophy are questions like, you know, um, why have government? What is the purpose of government? And a question that often comes up is, what is the best form of government? Now, if you ask everyone here, I'm sure they're all going to say democracy. Democracy is the best form of government. And yet, if you look throughout world history, uh, in most places and in most times, certainly for, for large uh, group groupings of people that we call nations, they were ruled by monarchs, by kings or queens. Today we celebrate a feast for Jesus Christ using this a title, a title of a monarch, Jesus Christ the King. And this was a feast that was instituted uh, about 100 years ago by the Pope in response to the growing secularization that, that societies were um, kind of moving further and further away from God and a, a God consciousness and, and a God centeredness. And so this is the reason why this feast was established. If you look in the Old Testament, there are actually several forms of government that God's people have from dif in different times. So remember, when the nation Israel is in slavery, um, God raises up Moses, and God chose Moses, guided Moses, spoke through Moses, right? And after Moses came Joshua, and Joshua led God's people into the promised land. But after that, there was a period, we call it the period of the judges. And so during this time, there was no uh, powerful central government. Uh, the tribes had their own governments and the smaller groupings, kind of elders that would rule. But when there was a crisis, God would raise up a leader that they called a judge. So think of people like Samson or people like Deborah to respond to the crisis. And then when the crisis was over, there was no more central leadership like that. Now, uh, during the time of the prophet Samuel, the people went to Samuel and demanded that God give them a king like other nations. So they saw in these other nations that had kings that they were more powerful, that there were certain advantages to a monarchy. A monarch could, um, could, could, could gather an army and keep the army supported, and so they would be more powerful. Okay? And, but God warned them that they would regret having kings. <laughs> He says, the kings eventually will oppress you. But they didn't listen. They demanded the king, and so God says, fine, I will give you a king. And the first king that God gave them was from the tribe of Benjamin, a man named Saul. We know that Saul disobeyed the Lord, and so God replaced him with a man named David. And David was the first and greatest of a line of kings that would rule over Judah 
for 500 years. And our first reading today follows a civil war. So after Saul dies, the northern tribes fight against the southern tribes, led by David, and eventually they all recognize David as king. And that's what we, what we heard about today. Now, when Samuel, um, when, when Samuel presented to God the people's request for a king, God said, they are rejecting me as their king. They are rejecting me as their king. Well, in the trial of Jesus, what do they do? They reject God as their king. Do you remember what they say to Pilate? They say, we have no king but Caesar. Now look at this. They've gone from wanting a king of their own to accepting a pagan ruling over them rather than have God rule over them in Jesus Christ. And so Pilate puts an inscription on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And remember, the leaders didn't like that inscription. But guess what? Pilate, as bad as a man as he was, wrote the truth. Jesus of Nazareth was the King of the Jews and the King of the Gentiles. The King of everybody. Because he is God. This is what is communicated to us in our second reading. It's from Paul's letter to the Colossians. But Paul is quoting in that letter a song that was sung that predates the writing of that letter. Right? That, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And what does he describe there? How, um, how through Christ all things were made. How for Christ all things are made and exist for him. How he holds everything together. How he reconciled all things by his blood on the cross and how he restores all things by his resurrection from the dead. And so he is Lord and ruler of all. There's been a lot of talk for a few years about people, um, people denying election results. And the concern is if you don't accept the results of an election, you are really bringing into question the legitimacy of the government. And of course, if people don't accept legitimacy of government, then you could fall into anarchy. There could be social disorder. At the crucifixion, almost everyone rejected the source of all legitimate authority. With one exception, a thief who was being crucified, a criminal who was being crucified with Jesus. He acknowledges Christ as king. And because of that, he goes from the cross to paradise on the same day. God delivers us from the powers of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of light. Plato did not like democracy, and he had good reasons. He witnessed the democratic rulers of Athens put his mentor and friend Socrates to death in an unjust trial and execution. Plato believed that in democracies, you would have selfish, manipulating people who through propaganda would manipulate public opinion and get themselves in power. That never happens, right? And I honestly, I actually, I, I am very sympathetic to a lot of the critiques of democracy. Um, but I'm also sympathetic to something that Winston Churchill once said. He said that 
Uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried. <laughs> I mean, so we know, like in the history of Israel, that the kings didn't go so well. Uh, and we know even throughout other history that there's also been great abuses of power by monarchs. The problem is not the form of political government, but the failure to recognize the true purpose of government and the source of its authority. See, we think of democracy, with that, the way we think about it is it means that the purpose of government is to effectuate the will of a majority of the people. Okay? But majorities are often wrong and often manipulated. You know, the church uh, has her own form of government. It's not a democracy. Uh, it is a rule by the successors of the apostles, right? So Jesus chose the 12 and their ministry of leadership which was a ministry of leadership, was passed on through apostolic succession with the Pope being the head of the College of the Apostles. And um, now there's this, this thing called the Synod, which we participated in. I've unfortunately heard a lot of concerning things from some of the bishops associated with the Synod. They've, they've given the impression that um, the church, for example, can contradict things that are revealed by God in Scripture and sacred tradition uh, if the majority of the people decide that's what we should do. There was a, a, a phrase that was used for people who were who champions of democracy before, uh, vox populi, vox dei, which means the voice of the people is the voice of God. Well, sometimes it isn't really. Actually, probably most of the time it isn't. Now, when it comes to civil governance, the church has no, no teaching on what is the best form. Rather, the church emphasizes that the purpose of all government of whatever form is to ensure what, what the church calls the common good. Now, this is a very rich concept. Uh, it is the sum total of conditions in a society that allow for people to flourish, to have peace, uh, to have an opportunity to turn, earn a living, for there to be sufficient sort of economic, uh, economic abilities to learn, earn a living, uh, for fundamental rights to be respected, but also, and this is what most people today don't recognize, uh, part of the common good is social conditions that allow for people to become better morally and spiritually, to grow in virtue, and to develop in a way that is pleasing to God. That is part of what the purpose of government is. Even if it's a secular government, we can measure how good it is or isn't is to the extent that it allows for those conditions, for this full sense of human flourishing. We see in um, Paul's letters to the Corinthians that he tells the Christians that they are to pray for kings and all in authority. And at that time, remember, the, those in authority were pagans. He said it's important that we pray for them, but he also had a very specific intention. Pray for them, he says, so that we, we Christians, may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and honesty. And he also suggests, as he writes later, that we're praying for them because God desires everyone to be saved. That the hope is that they, although pagans now, will be converted to Christ. So what about you? Do you recognize the kingship of Christ? What does that even mean? Well, in a simple way, it means that you do his will. This is how you subject yourself to Christ the King and recognize his authority. And his law is not something that is sort of this idea of this, this will 
contrary to ours, which is by external force making us do something, right, um, that we don't want to do. Rather, we should see that the will of Christ is actually in harmony in every way with our true good. Remember, all things were created in him and for him, including us. Now, sometimes we get confused about that because we have feelings that arise within us that come from our fallen nature because of sin. But the better part of ourselves can recognize that the law of Christ is telling us to do that which we are made for, that which is most, uh, most in harmony with the deepest reality of who we are. We must be like that good criminal who recognized Jesus as king when most do not. Now that man also accepted that he was suffering a just punishment for his crimes. When we complain about our leaders, I'm also reminded of something that someone else said, that we usually get the leaders we deserve. And I think that's true. I think much of the suffering that we suffer in many ways is suffering we deserve. I feel I don't get as much suffering as I deserve. I deserve more. I'm not asking for more, God, but... There are times when we, like Christ on the cross, was suffering an unjust punishment, a punishment he didn't deserve. But whether our suffering is deserved or unjust, the road to deliverance is the same. It is to cry out to Christ the King and to say to him, remember me.